Hello and welcome to a special episode of Two Woods Four Quarters, a Harlequins podcast. My name is Will and not only am I joined by my cousin Michael this week, but we're joined by Harlequins legend, England international and British and Irish lion, Ugo Monia. Oogs, it's going to be hard not to say Ugo every time I speak to you, but I will try and refrain from it. How are you doing? Good to have you with us. No, thank you for having me on and appreciate the generous uh, introduction. That was really kind. Oh, they're your accolades, mate, not mine. Your accolades. Yeah, it's it's a weird one because I'm in my second career. Um, I was actually having this conversation earlier with someone. But it's, I'm obviously really proud of everything that I achieved, but it was also in my like former life. So I don't want to sound ungrateful in any way because I had some of the best years of my life playing yeah. for Harlequins. But at the same time, I don't want to be one of them guys when I'm, I reckon I will be when I've <laughs> grandchildren and that. I want to yeah. be reminded of how good I was. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know exactly I what you mean. I know exactly but, what you mean. But yeah, now I've kind of left. I The way in which I look at the club and rugby and everything else, it's, it's about like who they are. Like when they won the Prem, yeah, like, a couple of years ago. Man, I almost had tears in my eyes. But... It was so good to see you as a fan that day, actually, because you do realise how much it still means. And it's it's a cutthroat business sport, isn't it? And as soon as players move on or retire, there's always a new crop coming through. But to see somebody like you in the ground that day with such passion, I mean, Mike and I were in the in the stands doing pretty much the same thing, like just completely. But I've just had this flashback. I actually think I remember because it was obviously COVID times. Yeah. You guys, I can't remember who else was on commentary that day, and I've watched it a million times. You were in that little outside block that was sort yeah. of in the stadium. The double fist pump for Moogs. The double. F- I remember turning around to my right, and I could see you there. And like we were literally twenty five yards away, giving it absolute beans, like um, right in front of where Dom scored that try. What a day! I mean, we've not got it tattooed what, on us for life. So <laughs> when I do commentary, I genuinely, ge- genuinely. I don't really care who wins. I just want to see a good match. Yeah. I'll have players in the week, but like, I'll give this man the match. I'm like, bro, that's that's your gift. Yeah. If you play well, you're a contender. Or I'll talk nicely about us. I'm like, if you do things well, it makes it really easy for me to say nice things. If you're crap, <laughs> I've kind of got to also highlight that you've been rubbish. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Even, if, even if it's Quinn's and even if we're losing and getting beat. Especially Danny Kerr. Yeah, exactly. He, I think he, he's made a point of it. I think I've only given a man of the match once, <laughs> and I've been commentating almost eight years now. But that final, it was hard not to want Harlequins to win because, yeah. a, as proud as I was of 2012, and no one can take that away from you because that's the first. That was the first time in the club's history, and that's wicked. And Harlequins are going to win the Premiership, I'm sure, on multiple other occasions. That was the first time. And so that's cool. But referencing 2012, eight years on, is a bit like, it's like us in football. This, do you remember 66? I'm like, okay, that was special. <laughs> but it also means we've been bang average since then because we yeah. haven't won anything. Yeah. So when you've got this exciting crop of talent coming through and the semifinals was bonkers. I remember going over to Ali Ekin, who was in commentary with me, and went, bro, this could be 50 to yeah. Bristol. And then they turned it around. Then to get to that final, I was like, this is nuts. And just the sense of occasion, the way in which they did it, very much true to who they were. I couldn't help myself. I was double fist pump. Yeah. 
and then I had to call my jets for when you're trying to analyze the games. <laughs> I remember you trying to get on the pitch and they wouldn't let you and all the crowd were trying to, I think we were all chanting, let him on. And eventually you got on the pitch, but it took a lot of doing. I know because they're obviously COVID times, like red zone, red zone, red zone. And I didn't have the adequate accreditation. Um, hey, and security people were just doing their job. And in fact, that same security guard who was trying to give me a bit of grief that day, he reminds me of it every single time I see him at Twitter. <laughs> not an issue. But I was just obviously lost in the moment. I want to see the lads that I played with in the change of with, like Danny Kerr, Will Collier, um, Joe Marler, Nick Evans as a coach, um, to name just a few. And you're just like, you've done it. And then you've got the new crop, like your Marcus Smiths. And I'm like... These are the days, like these yeah. are the days. And for some of you, only been at the club for strawberry season, like it's it's not that easy. But mm. however you've done it, never forget this moment. Yeah. I'll tell you what, you um, we'll, we'll do so much Quinn's chat as the episode goes on. But you did actually mention the big stoop there. We're obviously right in the middle of Six Nations period at the minute. Mm. It's been a bit of a an up and down bit. And we try and focus on a lot of the Harlequin boys when we're talking about Six Nations. But given sort of that middle period where we are now. How have you seen the first two games of England's campaign? How are you looking at it? Where do you think they're struggling? Where do you think they're doing well? Anyone particularly stood out for you or impressed you? Um, I was massively disappointed with the Scotland game. I think everyone was, you know. Um, Steve Warford, new coach, new era, no better way. And getting everyone on side by getting a W, winning the cup, winning the Calcutta Cup. So I was fully expecting them. And I think some bookies had them as like 10 points favourites. Scotland, obviously, they're a good side. I knew it, but I just thought we'd have enough. But unfortunately, it's the same old England. Yeah, in a way. Yeah, the, the, the first game of the Six Nations, of the Autumn Internationals, of the Summer Series, the same last year. They failed to win the first game of any campaign for a number of, for a couple of years now. I just thought that might change. And so for all the excitement um, of a new selection and a selection based on premiership form and players being rewarded for that, mm. you obviously just come away just feeling slightly deflated. Um, I understood what they were trying to do, but when you see a similarity in where they drop off. I mean, they're in the lead with what 10 to go, then doing Van der Merwe decides to do an absolute madness. And yeah. you're just like, what? Yeah. Like, this isn't underage rugby. This international rugby shouldn't happen, but he's a special player. So you're just disappointed about Italy game. It was good to get the win. It was good to get the win. And it was nothing more than that. But what it did yeah. do was an idea of how I think England are going to play. And that's a set-piece game. Steve Borfwick said it a few weeks ago, England were good at nothing last year. Mm. And to a large degree, I agree. But I saw a foundation of a set-piece game, which was really solid. Good yeah. line as you'd expect. Relatively good defence. I think that needs to be improved. And a massive kick-pressure game. Are they the things that get me jumping out of my seat? No, mm. I'm, I'm all for kick pressure and I've done the numbers on it. I think England kicked the ball away 13 times, um, 30 metres from Italy's try line. And I was like, in my opinion, if you kick the ball within the 22 or near the, or near the opposition's try line, you've got to kick to score. 
Yeah. And the 13 kicks, we didn't score a single try. Like we did with Marcus in the first test, kicking to Malins. Yeah. yeah, against Scotland, yeah. have to score. You have to score. There's only one which I would let slide with Owen Farrell's crossfield kick, Freddie Stewart against Cap Watson. I'm like, okay, mm. I get it. The yeah. dude gives up five inches of height. Fred is one of the best in the world. Didn't quite execute it. That's fine. Yeah. The rest of it, I think we'll understand. But that's the way in which Steve Warford sets his teams up. That's how Leicester won the title. And the job I think Steve Borthwick inherited is probably a slightly bigger job than I, I think we're realising he's actually got a massive job to do mm. than all the problems are a little bit more obvious now. So I, I totally get it back to basics. Um, and I just hope that they can implement that against Wales and for the remainder of the tournament. Is it going to be enough to compete with the France and the Islands? I guess we'll find out. It's going to be a measuring stick as to where we are against the best teams in the world. Do you think he's been a bit unlucky, Hughes, in terms of the, the injuries he's had? Because I'm not sure he would have gone with Smith and Farrell at 10 and 12 no. if he'd had Dan Kelly available. So do you think he's been a bit unlucky in that sense? And obviously without the likes of Courtney Laws and Tom Curry, two sort of mainstays in the England team. Do you think that's played a role or is is our country so well developed in terms of the, the players that we're bringing through? Should that not be an excuse? Should we have ready-made players ready just to step in? It shouldn't be an excuse. It, yeah. It's wild. It's wild. We have got the second largest player pool in the world behind South Africa. Um, I, I do feel sorry for Borthers in the respect that we got a coach that had 11 training sessions before an international match. And mm. then the idea of the back line he wanted to select, he wasn't able to select. If Ollie Lawrence or Dan Kelly was at 12, would England have won the game? We can debate that. Like, I'm, yeah. I'm not sure if that's the difference, but it would have given him an hour a week to be able to set the style of play that he wanted to play. Because that was really obvious against Italy with Ollie Lawrence at 12. So, but in saying all of that, I can look at Ireland who... I've had Jameson Gibson Park, who've not had to hike Furlong, who played against the second best team in the world about the captain Johnny Sexton for 30 minutes in the second half. Mm. Conor Murray, who started, whose dad went into intensive care on Tuesday after being hit by um hit off his motorbike by by a truck. Like everyone is having to deal with it. France haven't got Jonathan Dante. Uh, Wales haven't had Lewis Rees-Amit. The list goes on and on and on. Yeah. That's just part and parcel of the game, how you adapt and get that sense of cohesion, which which is really tough because at international rugby, you expect to see the very best of the very best from day one. The reality is you can have the very best players in the world come together and they're not going to click as you expect them to click when you've just had 11 <laughs> training sessions together. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think he does this weekend then? This podcast will come out on Wednesday, so it'll be before the, the, the team for Wales comes out. It's a bit of an odd one. Obviously, there's um, lots of, of talking points coming out of Welsh Rugby Union at the moment and the threat of a strike. And assuming the game does go ahead, how do you think he lines up? We've had Ford rejoin the squad. There's now three world-class fly halves. And he, for, in my opinion, he can only pick one. He can't have a 10-12 axis because Ollie Lawrence was just too good against Italy. What do you do if you're you're in that situation, or, or what are your two pence on it at least? A, the game will go on, like one hundred percent convinced of that. It mm. would be terminal for Welsh rugby if the game yeah. Jesus. go on and they were to lose the ten million pounds. But it's not just rugby. If you think of the communities connected to rugby, Cardiff Central, 
Cardiff as as the capital city, hospitality, cough, like everyone is affected, and the ripple effect of this game not being yeah. out is so significant that the WRU will do everything within their power to make sure that happens. Already hearing reports today as we speak that the sixty cap rule is going to be abolished. And I think that's absolutely necessary. Uh, give players the ability to go and play where they want to play. Do you think we'll see something similar with um, the overseas rule in England? Absolutely. If, if that pressure comes from players, then then that's a change that will have to be made. Yeah, I think there's been conversations about it and I understand the merits of it. I think the Gallagher Premiership is the most competitive and most exciting league domestic league and world rugby I really do and people mm. look at it but it's just an opinion like I, I'm not speaking from facts it's just my opinion on it watch a lot of rugby I get most excited about our domestic competition but I think with the economic crisis and two teams going into administration there's just not enough room to house all our talent within England you see Jack Willis like you can't tell me Jack Willis is not going to be a better player for playing in Toulouse yeah exactly like, come on you know he's playing with Jalom she's playing with Anton Dupont uh, Intermac um, just to list a few like he will become a better player and he also as a person will develop develop himself or playing in a totally different culture in a totally different way so I think to take some of that economic stress off the premiership clubs and for players to be paid what they should be paid which is good money but they all put their bodies on the line every weekend I would yeah. like to see that loosen a little bit Jack Willis wasn't in contention week one because he was in France and if you're not playing for your country you're obviously contracted to, to, to lose he had to play yeah. Toulouse wasn't made available. So I would like to see that relaxed a little bit. New Zealand have got a really good model, but your contract to the union, but you're allowed these sabbaticals. Um, over the last few weeks, we've heard of four or five All Blacks after the World Cup or just off to Japan. Yeah. Go, yeah. go make a fortune, bro. Go make a fortune. Um, is the rugby as competitive? Yeah, but good. Good. The average career length in the Premiership seven years. You have seven earning years to make money and to achieve all you can achieve. If there's opportunities for you to be able to go abroad and top up that income, go and live in a brand new culture, play in a brand new league, get coached by different coaches you'd never cross paths with, I think you should be allowed to do it. But on the game this weekend, what does Steve Borthwick do? We've got George Ford in camp, Courtney Laws, who captained in Australia, Tom Curry coming back, who probably would have started the first game. I think Lewis Ludlam has been so brilliant mm. that it would be too hard a call to just bring in Tom Curry. I think Curry goes on the bench. We know he can play six, seven, eight. Um, Courtney's an interesting one because Ollie Chesham has just yeah. been incredible. Yeah, He's he been has. the best second row, I think, yeah. in Six Nations. So what do you drop, Marrow? Wouldn't have thought so. Exactly. <laughs> so I'd bring Courtney onto the bench and George Ford. I mean, there's context to everything. We're talking yeah. about the fire half that helped him win the Premiership. Someone he knows very well with over 70 caps. He knows him, trusts him. The guy's had what, about 50 minutes of rugby since. In the Prem Cup as well. Final. Yeah, oh, sorry, a Prem Cup as well. So does he feel he's ready? But, ally to that, what type of game does Steve Wolf want to play? High-pressure kicking game. That's probably George Ford's 
biggest and best attribute. Yeah. If he was to be on the bench this weekend, I wouldn't be surprised. I feel gutted for Marcus. Yeah. Because Marcus, for me, is a vision of, I've said it previously, he's a vision of how I think England should play. I just don't think they're there yet. And that's not Marcus's fault. No, I agree. I almost he's, think the, the World Cup's coming a little bit too soon, isn't it? But we haven't got enough time to to change and play the way that we want to see us play, which would be a Marcus Smith style of rugby. I don't think it's realistic for us to sort of turn it around and be in that attacking state of mind and, and structures by a World Cup that is less than what, nine months away? Less than nine? Yeah, even less than that. Um, six months away, but they do have a two and a half month pre-season. But then who's running the attack? Richard Wigglesworth. Um, we 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 know how Leicester play. I think yeah. that's going to be cut, copied, and pasted in England. But I do think they need to find more of an attacking threat if you are to challenge. You look at the best team. I was having this conversation with someone at BT Sport yesterday, and they uh, they asked me the question: Do you think Ireland win the Six Nations? I said yes. Do you think Ireland can win the World Cup? I said yes. I said purely because Ireland's attack is so good. I think. They sent a challenge to every opposition of, can you score more than four tries? Ireland will create or execute or score four tries again. Yeah. They scored four tries and butchered a load against yeah. the second best team in the world. Yeah, I mean, they barely got a third gear in round one, but they can bank on that. We have an attack that can score four tries a game. Can your attack beat ours? And if I measure Ireland's attack against England's attack, England haven't shown the ability to be able to just... Ireland will score four tries this weekend. Yeah. Well, I've got more than that, yeah. (laughs) I think they can score four tries against Scotland. Like, Mm. I don't know if there's a team they can't score four tries against. In New Zealand, mate, they look so potent. Mm. So they have that. So what what is our challenge to opposition? Is it that we can restrict defences to one or two tries a game? Is it that our attack is of the quality where we can score four tries? We need to find our USP, and that needs to be the gauntlet. That needs to be the challenge thrown down every week. At the moment, we don't have it, but it's only two games into a brand-new era. Yeah. Um, Oog, you speak so well, mate. I don't know if anyone's ever told you, but I was gripped all of that. I felt like I was in a uni lecture or something. That was, does, it make, does it make sense? Yeah, so much. Complete so sense. Complete, and when you break it down are, like that, it couldn't be more simplistic, could it? So it's it's one of those ones. If that's the debate, you need to score more than four tries to beat Ireland. I can't see us doing that in a World Cup. You have to. You, you literally have to. Mm. Ireland scored four tries against... Um, against France, they got held up over the trial line three times and dropped the ball over the trial line once. Of one of the times they got held up over the trial line, uh, they had a kick return and then Hugo Keenan scored. So we can erase one of those moments. Yeah. But they had eight try scoring opportunities against the second best team in the world. Like, that's what their attack can do. Makes it sound quite scary, doesn't it? How good maybe could they even be? It's, it's, it's wild. My challenge to Ireland was... I said it about France last year. They have to win a Grand Slam before the World Cup. They did it last year. They just had to. If you want to connect the fans, the public, everyone to make you feel like you can do it, need some evidence. Not just talking about it. Not a good PR. That won't do it. Ireland, that's the challenge. You're number one team in the world. You've gone down to New Zealand. Can you find another gear? And they've gone, yeah, we can. They're relentless. 
They're absolutely relentless and super efficient. England, France, I can tell you, if you can't make, match France physically, you won't win. Yeah. If you can't challenge South Africa's set piece, you, you won't, won't win. What is the statement we say about England? If you can't do this against England, you won't win. We don't have that yet. I don't expect it yet as well. Mm. I'd be ridiculous to think. If I want to see this Harlequin's intricate style attack from England after two weeks and three weeks of being together, like you're in, you're dreaming. But I want to see further evidence of the gauntlet, of the challenge which England set an opposition every single week, which you can just bank upon. You talk about the Quinn's attack there, and obviously Nick Evans is is pulling the strings at the moment. We don't know how long for. It's, it's temporarily until the, the end of the Six Nations, and who knows if he does really well, maybe he'll stick around. I don't know if the appointment of, of Richard Wigglesworth would change that. What's um what's going wrong for Quinns at the moment, Oogs? We're we're having a bit of a tough time at the moment. We've lost our last sort of five or six on the bounce, if you exclude Champions Cup, which was a welcome break for us. We were flying high in third for so long, and we were talking about potentially finishing second to get a home semi. Then it became about finishing third so we could get sale away because we've already done them at their place. And now we've dropped down as far as seventh and, and can't seem to find a win from anywhere. What's your read on it all? It's such a competitive league. You say it's your your favourite league. I completely echo that. You look at the scores this weekend with Leicester beating Saracens and and obviously we took a bit of a, an L to, to Gloucester and then Sale and Northampton was a humdinger as well. What's your read on the state of play of the league and also our club, the Mighty Quins? Yeah, the airspace in the Gallagher Prem is like uber tight. Mm. and um, every club searches for consistency, don't they? And I'm not even talking week to week. I just think Quinn's have had too many moments in matches over the last two months where they have let momentum slip and they're not been able to stop the rot in-game. That, that's what it's been for me. Against Gloucester, you look at two key defining moments within the game, the way they started, the way they finished. Yeah. Um, Wilco Lowe gives away a penalty neck roll 25 metres out from Gloucester. Three minutes into game, Quinn's got the ball. Kick, kick to the corner. You can see the try and you're like, whoa, we were in possession 60 seconds ago. Yeah. Now we're under our sticks thinking about what we're going to do for kickoff. That's wild. So you get put under the pump. Gloucester then continue with their driving more because, hey, they get filled with this energy. It's their USP. They're flipping well drilled by George Givington. They had the most... Um, most or the best attacking driving lineup, I think, last season. Yeah, they're so good at it, aren't they? It's so almost, the first almost a guaranteed try. Exactly. First opportunity to execute, shock horror. You give away enough penalty. What do they do? They go to the corner. James Chisholm goes off for 10 minutes, and you're yeah. like, gosh. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So that's the start of the game. But Quinns do what Quinns do and wrestle up momentum. And their routine, where their challenge is, is your defense good enough to stop us from scoring? Mm. Do you know what I mean? Because we don't go away. And Gloucester stayed in the fight. Quinns came back, scored some lovely tries. Quinns are winning at 61 minutes. Well, you, you need to see that game out. You've got... I said that in the stands. I said it in the stands, my mate. I said, we got, we've got, we've come to this point in the game. We haven't actually played particularly well. We've been close, but if you look at it sort of objectively, Gloucester probably dominated the game for the most part of it, but somehow we're ahead. We've gone down a man, we've scored with a man off. We haven't been in the game. If we want to wrestle back some momentum into our season, we have to get better at closing these games out. 
hundred percent. I'm an Arsenal fan. I watch Arsenal at Aston Villa at the weekend. Yeah, yeah but that was nice. Oh my gosh! I, I I was talking to a friend of mine. He's like, I don't know why people support sports teams because it's actually <laughs> enjoyable. And I was like, you're right. For the large part, it's actually just turmoil. It is, yeah. Um, well, that's how we feel at the moment, supporting Quins. But we still believe that's the weird thing because we know we've got this weird team of players that have got X factor all within them that can turn it on at any time. We've got a few players coming back from injury now with Lewis Liner returning. Luke Northwell came back against Gloucester. Steph's recently come back and is now coming back from a ban. Hopefully, Will Collier's not too far away. Mm. And we don't know about Tyrone Green, but I'm just praying he's going to be back soon because he is absolute dynamite, as good as Nick David has been. He's our, he's our X factor that we're getting to any side in the league. So I think we might have had a bit of bad luck as well. But you look at other clubs, they're also missing players. There's a lot of injuries knocking around the league at the moment. There's a lot of players getting called up to England and they seem to have coped with it a little bit better than we have. What is the positions, I think, um, for all the talent that is missing and there's loads to come back, I I think you miss Will Evans. Oh, huge. Yeah. yeah. In, in every single game. Not that Luke Wallace isn't... Yeah, Luke I mean, Wallace is a baller. His, his stock has risen. We said it a couple of weeks ago. His stock's risen so much this year, especially when Kenningham's been out and Evans has had a bit of a concussion then he was ill, I think, this weekend. We do have that breakdown presence in, in our side when we're at our potential and Andre does it almost better than anyone but when Will yeah. Evans is on the park he is an absolute freak yeah him and Tommy Rafael are the best in the league mm. yeah. in competition they're, they're, they're a joke and that's actually where Gloucester battered Quinns in the first half it broke down penalty I think it was four at half time um, in, sorry in the first half but Quinns were winning at 61 come on this our mm. moment taking points of the team that had just beneath us it's a massive game and then they just got slapped in the final 10 minutes. So oh. I think the drives were 71, 75 or 76, something like that. And you're like, so we were winning the game with nine minutes to go and then we can see two. Mm. You know, you, 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 can't, you, you just can't allow for that. You can't allow for that. I look at Northampton and they won their match of the weekend. Somehow. Yeah. Some <laughs> I think a red and two yellows absolutely helps. Yeah, yeah. For Northampton, my concern for them in trying to be where they want to be, and that even if they get to where they want to be, you can't concede that amount of points. Mm. Because once again, you put pressure on your attack to be better than 28 points. If you go into every game thinking, I have to, we have to be 28 points in our attack, and your and your attack just doesn't quite function or you get beaten up with a breakdown or you lose six lineouts on Friday as what happened, unfortunately, mm. then, then you're just asking too much of one part of your game. And if your defence doesn't complement your attack and no one expects both to have a sense of equilibrium, yeah, um, every team has gets their energy from attack or defence, don't they? Harlequins is attack, but you need your defence just to be a bit tighter. And I think over this last period, Harlequins' attacks been pretty good. Rassing away. Unbelievable. It was the defence. It was moments like dropping, restart. Those moments which really matter, which in isolation are insignificant. A drop ball and knock on is insignificant across 80 minutes. But the moment of that, when it's a chance to relieve pressure, mm. And then you can see the back of it. You come out from halftime after having this roaring team talk and you can see off the first phase. You're like, they're yeah. killers. And Harlequins, unfortunately, over the last couple of months, have just had too many of those moments. 
I went up to Northampton New Year's Day and watched us get, for use of a better phrase, absolutely slapped about in almost every <laughs> department. And the, I don't know if you, this is a really niche reference, but you know, in the film Johnny English Reborn, when he mentions Mozambique and he gets that weird twitch in his eye, whenever someone mentions, <laughs> whenever someone, whenever someone mentions the line out now, that's what it makes me feel like. I get this like weird like facial twitch when people mention the line out. But I like a niche reference. Yeah, yeah that's about as niche as it gets. That is but, fairly yeah. niche. It was um, being in, in Kingston on Friday night. We've got a, <laughs> numerous group chats in which we talk about Quinzon, and I made the point on a couple of them. Although I, I looked at the BT Sport page today, you know they scored four tries, we scored four tries, they kicked their four, and we only kicked one. It wasn't actually that close on the pitch. It felt so much more distant than that. But again, we were so close, but it almost made me feel worse because we think, well, we did so much wrong and you sort of have that tint where you think, well, okay, we're not that far away. Even we can be poor and still beat size. But we did so much wrong across the 80 minutes. Like you say, we were up with 50 minutes to play and then we just got pulled apart in the last 10. I, I do feel a bit concerned for the first time in about two years, 18 months about where we stand at the minute. And I'm not you sure... Might not make the the top, might not make top four. Yeah. Prince mm -hmm. might not make top four. Mate, there's five matches to go. Your next six game. weeks ago, we were talking about where we were going to go and play our semi final home or away, and now yeah. we're about not making Re the playoffs. Realistically, there's only two spots to go for, only two. Yeah, yeah. you're right, you're right. Sale and Sarri's they're gone, right? They're gone. So, you're, you're looking at two. <clears throat> I was in the studio on Sunday just looking at the remaining fixtures, and I was like, wow, you've got teams like London Irish have got three home fixtures in their last five yeah. matches. And because of the staccato nature, because of bye weeks and obviously losing Worcester and Wasp, which was desperately disappointing, it's hard to build momentum. You're not going week to week to week. Like, Quinns have this weekend off now, don't they? I'm yeah. Careful. And they yeah. don't play till March the 6th. Or March the 4th, which is big. the rearranged big game yeah. against Exeter. So we've actually only got one game left at the Stoop because we've also got big summer kickoff now against Bath. So our last game at the Stoop is Newcastle in April. Mate, it's bonkers. Yeah. It's bonkers. Hey, have you got to go to Leicester and Saris as well? Yeah, we do. We've got we, Saris we... away at Spurs, though. Which yeah. puts a bit of a different spin on it. I fancy them at the Stone I fancy, I fancy Spurs. Us at Spurs. I yeah. don't fancy us at Stone Age. We, Will and I went to the Stone Age three times last year. Went for the league in the, during the Six Nations period, the semi-final, and then we also went for the women's semi-final. And in both, all three games, we got, we got beaten pretty yeah. convincingly. I, I yeah. think at Spurs, we've got a shot, you know. It just feels like that kind of game where it's a bit more neutral and it's a nicer pitch, nicer environment, big occasion, which the boys will love. It's just after the Six Nations. I mean, if George Ford is playing 22, maybe we've got Marcus at our disposal, at our disposal again. So um, we fancy that one. But we figured out of the six games we got left, if we could probably win four of them, that might be enough, depending on other results. <laughs> it feels like such a ridiculous statement. We've got six games left. All we've got to, all we've got to do is win four. We haven't won in five. I, well, I know, I know, I know. But we've got... We've got Bath away, I think. We've got Bath <laughs> at Twickenham on Big Summer kickoff. Okay, Bath, and there was another one where I was like, okay. Bristol um, away. Bristol away is quite tricky. No disrespect to Bath and Bristol, but they're teams that are underperforming. Yeah. But in saying that, this league is wild. And Bath, Bath. The thing is, there's not a bad team in the Prem. No, I know. Ordinarily, I say, boys get up to Bath, have a nice little walk down by the river, cheeky coffee, turn up, get the job done on the bus, go. Mm. Bristol, 
Bristol bottom of the league, are they? Or have they just come off the bottom? Well, no, they've we've got the, the bottom three, haven't we? Because we've got Newcastle, Bristol and Bath and some order of, of those three is that make up the bottom of the league. So we've, we've got the right teams, if you look at it as it is in the league yeah. table. But then if Quinns don't beat those three teams, you don't deserve to be in the top No, yeah. no you're right. Then it's not a poor me situation. like Because... Mm. Top four's great, okay? Like, you want to be in the top four, then you're in to just knock out rugby and anything can happen in cup rugby. But you also want to be going into the top four, not just to be satisfied and take breath. You want to be going into the top four with momentum, thinking, mm. I don't know who we play. Like, I played a little, long time ago now. We knew we were a good team. And genuinely, we didn't care who we played or where we played. We knew if we showed up, Weird win. I remember when we played Munston Challenge Cup semi at Thoman Park, and they I think they'd only ever lost one game at Thoman Park in Europe in their history. Mm. I spoke to my agent on the Tuesday. He's like, oh, Are you looking forward to heading to Limerick? I was like, Mate, can't wait. And he went, um, Bookies have got you at eight to one. I won't put money on it. Yeah, me. stick a tenner on. <laughs> and he laughed. He laughed. And I was like, Bro. I've seen how we've trained. Yeah. I know what we can do. We will beat Munster at Thoman Park. That was the attitude. I. It wasn't even a case of, it wasn't being disrespectful. I just had this unwielding belief in who we were. And I just knew if we could get our game onto the pitch, and that's the biggest challenge, every opposition you come across tries to get you from plan A to plan B as quick as they can, right? Yeah whether it's chasing the game or protecting or whatever it might be. I knew if we could get our game onto the pitch early, they wouldn't live with us. And this is a team that has Paul O'Connell, Rono Gara, Keith Ells, mate, they, Donna Crocallan, they're the wicked team. John Hayne, like Centurions, and we're just the flipping jesters from South West London. <laughs> and the beauty is, is you'll never change people's opinions of you. We were the arrogant, young, London, champagne-swigging lads, and I flipping loved that. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, if that's what you think of us, I'll play into that stereotype. That's cool. Yeah. Like, that, that's sweet. Like, if I say to them, oh, no, but we're actually just really humble, and whether that was true or not, they're not going to believe no, it. They They've made up their mind, yeah. And exactly. So I was like, if that's what you think we are, I'll tell you what, we're going to use it and turn that into a superpower of us these arrogant lads with their swag and their game plan and their offload and their tempo, Danny Kev is high and tight and all of that. <laughs> cool, bro, we're bringing it. And Guys like Matt Hopper and Charlie Walker with their frosted blonde tips. I was, I was just thinking about Lids, actually. I'm not sure the high and tight... At the time, I thought the high and tight was a good look, but looking back on it, I'm not so sure. Yeah, you still got the high and tight, haven't you, Will? Nah, it's, not that, it's not that high no. or that tight at the moment, but... It's good. I like it. Um, oh, thanks. But yeah, like I just, I, I think, I don't know because I, I don't chat to the lads enough. I kind of give them their own space because you talk about it. Sometimes you have to be polite. Sometimes you're not so polite about what they're doing. depends on what they do. But mm. the, the one thing I know every successful team has in whatever sport is just this unshakable belief that if you can get onto the pitch where you can get on there, other teams can't live with you. And that's kind of the spirit, I'm sure, is what Quinn's players have, but it's the one they really need to just channel going into this last stretch because it is properly the last stretch. The pitches yeah. are getting firm. You're going from big stadium to big stadium. 
big event to big event, and it's all got to matter. All has to matter and just pick up. I mean, they should have had a bit of breathing space now, but they're properly in the mix, in the belly of the most competitive league that I've known since I've been commentating. Yeah, I said but... it last week, didn't I, with Will, to you on the phone. I said we were sitting here in, what, mid-Jan of 2021, having just lost our head coach and barely won a game. And we're now mid-Feb with, you're right, the pitches are going to harden up. We're going from Twickenham to the big stoop, to our place, to Spurs. Yeah. It sort of feels like it probably is quite well set up, but we need a couple of things to go right and we need a few boys back and we need to find some spark. We need a bit of magic from somewhere. Got the magic. Yeah. Tying up set piece and by set piece, I'm not talking about scrum. Scrum for a large part of this season has been the best in the play. Yeah. Line outs. Line outs oh. an issue. But there, goes, the line there goes my face again. We're starting twitching. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry. But line outs become an issue just because of personnel unavailable. I look at the line at the weekend, like we know Ernie doesn't jump. Yeah. Dino jumps. Um, Wallace jumps. I mean, Luke Wilco Lowe almost picks him up one man and throws him at, throws him at the front of the line a lot of times. You're right, they do jump, but typically it's it is Steph and it's Kenners that are our Kenners. two key jumpers and neither of them are available. And also, Wacker wasn't thrown in. Yeah. Riley's, so, not, Riley's not played a huge amount of rugby this year either, coming off the bench. He's wicked, uh, mate. He's yeah, a superstar, he bro. Superstar to make him. But yeah. you just, just lack the options to give the variety and Gloucester have the best defensive liner in the league. So coming up against that with limited variation, um, limited options, up against a team that was going to put loads of pressure, it just felt like um, the perfect storm, unfortunately. But with bodies coming back, Domers will be back in a few weeks. Steph Levis will be back. Mm. Kenningham will be back. All of a sudden, you've got four really good lineup options, which obviously is going to be massive for Quinns because they love playing off launch. Yeah, if there was ever a time for momentum, it's now, isn't it? Was it six games left, throw in a seventh with the Champions Cup? You're looking at a seven-game World Cup run. It's pretty much our World Cup run now, isn't it? And we're going for glory, so we'll see how we get on. You mentioned there about giving giving the boys a bit of space now in your, your new remit as a, a pundit, a commentator, and, and everything in between. How are you finding that? It feels like you're, you're absolutely loving life. It's It's like a duck to water the way you take into it. How does it compare to your previous life? What are you particularly enjoying? And um, where do you see yourself going in sort of five, ten years? Is it more of the same? Is it you've started to take on the mic and and, and lead the way in the in the punditry panels? So is that how you see yourself going further in, in this career? Um, I've got a clear vision of what I want to do in the next five, ten years. Um, yeah. I've got, yeah, I've got a clear picture of my mind. I'm a celeb, Strictly, <laughs> Bake Off. No. <laughs> I've done Strictly. I don't know if I'd do, I don't know if I'd do the jungle. I've been offered the jungle before. Have you? It feel like the right time. Um, and I, yeah, I, I didn't, I actually just didn't want to do it. I respect people who have done it and I watched the show and I really enjoy it. But Strictly is a show I've wanted to do since I retired. And it just felt like the right time to do it. Mm. Um, but yeah, I've got a clear picture in my mind of what I want to achieve. It's, it's a little bit like <clears throat> if we had a um, first year academy kid and said to him, what do you want to do in five years? I don't know how they'd answer it. They, they'll say, I'm clear. I know what I want to do. But you don't want to say the things because I don't know if it's society. I don't know whether it's just been uh, typically English or British. But... I don't know. I I challenge myself and I dream big 
But I think sometimes when you say it, people are like, you want to do what? Like, flip it. Who do you think you are? Uh, big, big dreams, though. We, we respect that. That's good. Yeah, I don't want to be limited by other people's opinions. So I generally kind of keep it to myself. But I have a clear direction, and I think I've got a rough idea how I want to go about it. But the transition itself... Um, I've loved it. I always say to people that I've moved on without moving too far away, which really helps, I think. Because um, I do think every sports person that retires will suffer physically, financially, or mentally. Mm. Just happens. Um, for me, it's definitely been physically. <laughs> <laughs> Back still an issue at times, which which plagues me. But generally, like I've I've really enjoyed my transition. I do feel fortunate. I got to call time when I wanted to call time. Um, going into my final season, 14-15 season, I sat with Connor and I think I, I think I accepted and said to him I was going to retire in maybe October, November before the season finished. So I had like six months of knowing this was going to be it. I got used to it. But in terms of thinking of when I was going to retire, I signed my last contract for Quinn's age 29, mm. three-year deal, and I made this promise to myself that if at the end of three years I'm playing well and body feels great, I'm loving it, then I, I, I want to stay in the game. If I'm not, then I want to do something else. I've been at only one club all my year and the club been good to me and hopefully the club feels as if I've been good to them. So I didn't want to become like a bit part player um, and I didn't want to, I don't know, you can also stunt... Um, the, the progress of young players as well. So I wanted to do what I thought was right for me, but also was right for the club. Could I have stayed on at Harlequins? Yeah. Could I have been paid well to do it? Yeah. Um, would that have been the best thing for me or the club? I just don't think so, bro. Yeah. And so, hey, if I'd been a journeyman and just bounced around, been at three or four different clubs, you could be blinking and just go, what? There's a two. There's another two-year contract. Good money take it but I think it's important to respect the club that you've been at when you've just been at one club and there's another um, another quote I heard um, you'd rather retire a year early than a year late Um, my last game was called two tries at the packed out stoop in front of all my family my friends um, got man the match that's 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 how I ended my career. Yeah, the perfect ending, really. Still some digging to do here before they find the line. And Monia scores. And a try on his final appearance at the Stoop that makes him the club's record premiership try scorer. How's about that for a way to say goodbye? That's my team. John Evans from the Dragons. Monia's picked it up and Monia's still going. Got a second. He's got a second, and this is turning into one of those dreamy farewells for Hugo Monia. It's a perfect ending. Like, I couldn't have wished for a better setting for it. Connor did ask me to play away at Newcastle the following week, and I just said no. Um, I'm not ending my career at Kingston Park. I'm <laughs> <laughs> retired at the stoop. <laughs> you know I mean? At the stoop with two tries under your belt in front of the family. I think you made the right call there, and it sounds like you respected it as much as he would have liked you to play. There is that. There is that common story among athletes, though, isn't it? You know, a lot of the time you don't get to go out on your own terms. 
and, and to be really happy and comfortable, you know, he just played well, he just scored twice. We could probably do the next week at Newcastle and just having the ability to say, do you know what? It's it's not for me. But in terms of when you finish your rugby, and I think, you know, without, you know, getting all gushy, I absolutely think the BT commentary on the rugby sense is, is just beyond excellent. I I absolutely love Nick Mullins. I think Ali Eakin is incredible. You mentioned earlier, you know, off camera, Sarah Elgin, etc. When you went into it, were you like a proper rugby nose in that sort of sense, as in wanting to watch every game and being sort of hyper analytical and stuff? Or did that come a bit sort of more naturally as you started doing it? Or did you know that was an area of the game that you were sort of quite clued up on? Um, I'm I'm a bit of an undercover rugby nose. Okay, yeah, nice. If, if rugby's on, I'm watching it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anywhere. And I think when I started becoming a senior player, you take on more roles. Like Mark Mapletoff was our backs coach. And I used to harass him. He he, he would tell you, I'm like, oh, I've looked at this. Have you thought about this as a restart or this is the defensive system or this is an attacking play? And I'd present to the team and I'd be happy presenting to the team. But in my earlier days, I was just, I, I just backed myself because of my physical ability without too much study. I think the best players understand and the players that have real good longevity and get to the top of the game and stay at the game, twin having their physical prowess whilst becoming an absolute rugby student. I became a rugby student probably at the time where my body started to let me down a bit. And maybe I had to become more of a student because I physically couldn't do everything I needed to do. If you can get the two of them in sync, you become like a superpower. You really do. But I loved studying, analysing in my latter years um, rugby. And I think if you want to be really good in punditry and broadcasting, you should be a rugby nose. Like you flipping just should be. Yeah. And the whole concept of a rugby nose is just someone who really loves their rugby is actually quite committed and dedicated to it. And it's like, you flipping should be all those things. It's your profession. Yeah. It's literally yeah. your profession. Like the lads who at Quinns and around the league who go to training every day aren't called training noses. It's just your bloody job. Yeah. What you came to training today. Oh, what a nose. <laughs> you went to the gym. Look how fit he is. Like, no, that's that's a requirement. Yeah. I think it's a requirement for me to understand. And but it's not even just watching games. It's I talked I won't say who, but I had a good, I had a wicked half-hour conversation with referee last week, just talking about how the game is, how what's really helpful, what's unhelpful. Um, I said to him, if I get things wrong, let me know, because I don't think we're accountable as pundits. I can say I think that's the yellow and yeah. be wrong, and be wrong, and no one says anything. Yeah. That well, was it Luke, what, was it Luke Pierce? Sure. <laughs> huh? and did, was it Luke Pierce? And did you ask him if he was about to send off Ackerman before Danny opened his mouth? <laughs> <laughs> well, I speak to Luke Pierce a lot. Yeah, he's actually one of the better refs. I think he's like, oh, he's awesome. Yeah, he. Um, he's we, I'm, I'm sure rugby Twitter will will stick the booting on your eggs anyway, so you don't need to worry about uh, oh, refs. I don't care. No, I don't care what what Twitter has to say. That's honestly, it's actually really sad because. Um, I've disengaged so much from Twitter. 
have you? This is interesting because we love it, obviously, because we we talk about Quinns all the time on there. So we've got a lovely community of Quinns fans that just love the club. But we do see a lot of negativity surrounding rugby. It's it's far more doom and gloom than the positive stuff. So I'm not surprised to hear that, but disappointed. I'll go on to my Twitter now, bro, and I will I'll tell you something. Hang on. Just pull up pull up the first tweet from some keyboard warrior that pops up. No, my it'll be Stephen Wall saying Andre Esterhazen's off to Leon. <laughs> yeah, something like that. I'm trying to have a look at oh it's all bloody changed, hasn't it? So I don't know. But if I was to show you my I reckon I've muted and blocked. I, I couldn't even tell you how many people I've muted oh, and really? blocked. Well, just because... Not, just not, worth the en- not worth the energy, is it? There's, there's <laughs> no, only a certain amount of opinions that you want or need to listen to, and they're certainly not I, on Twitter. I don't mind opinions, because I give my opinion every weekend, and I don't get it right every weekend. And if someone wants to correct me, that's absolutely fine. If someone wants to disagree with me, it's absolutely fine. When you're rude, I'm just not interested. Like yeah, I yeah. say it all the time. I wouldn't let someone post crap through my letterbox, so mm. why would I allow that on my timeline? And... I, I don't care. Like whether you follow me, unfollow me, and it's funny because whether it's podcasting, newspaper articles, or broadcasting, you give your opinion a lot, and that's fine. But I, I hope that the majority of the time, I try and speak positively about things when there's serious topics that needs to be addressed. You have to give your opinion on it. But I don't understand why people feel they need to be rude, and so that, that I, I don't even have a three strike rule if you're just rude you're getting muted if you're uber rude you're just getting blocked i just can't bother but actually the one thing i did really enjoy about twitter from inception is you could be anywhere in the world and we can have a conversation and the conversation happened between you two could be expanded to a hundred people who then just part on and offer opinion that's gone it's not a community so if i put out an opinion i'm now putting out opinion to everyone that follows me and then one person who might disagree they have to qualify the fact that they disagree by slagging you off. Europe, and then they give their opinion. I'm just like, why? Just you don't, why? yeah, not needed. So I, so I disengage. But actually, what I've learned, and I remember watching Wales against England a couple of years ago when a couple of bad decisions to the ref. Do you remember the knock-on? Yeah. The and there was another one. And I tweeted, ref's having a shocker. I was just fuming. Ref's having a shocker. Bro, within 10 minutes, I had hundreds of replies mm. of people just abusing the ref. So I deleted the tweet because I was like, I'm literally become the thing that I hate. Yeah, about the protagonist, I, yeah. Yeah, I've facilitated people who think, well, if he's slagging him off, I'm good. And actually, people who were just like not even bothered and now bothered, they're like, yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. this ref, he's not only rubbish, but he's also a... So I delete it because I don't want to become a facilitator of people to then go and abuse other people. It's just, yeah, unfortunately, that's what it's descended into. So I don't, I, I, unfortunately, I don't, or maybe it's fortunate, but I just don't engage as much as I'd actually like to because the platform isn't what it used to be or should be. Yeah, we um we enjoy trying to engage our Quinns community in a in a match day scenario as well, where we offer our opinions, and um we don't always get too much stick for it because we're completely deluded Quinns fans, and and luckily most <laughs> of our followers are too, so uh, we're all in the same boat. But what do you think to the the match day coverage? There's been a lot of positive reception to to Tabai and George Givington both having an interview together at the same time pre match on BT, which was a nice piece of innovation that we haven't seen too much before. 
Um, and then we see things on Sky Sports with the football where they've got Dermot Gallagher giving his opinion on refereeing decisions and VAR decisions. Where do you see kind of rugby going in that space? It was good to see the dual interview pre-match. Do you see any other kind of quirky things that you think would improve the game and sort of the viewing experience? Yeah, I think there's there's lots. We spend a lot of time thinking about what we can do. And it just comes down to access. There's mm. so much we want to do. So I got in the car with Nick Mullins actually up to Gloucester and we chatted about it and we reflected on Tabai and George being together. And actually, I wish it was just more of a conversation just between the two of them. Yeah. Um, because Tabai, you could see, really bought into it and he yeah. was asking loads of questions and they were both complimenting each other and George got into it as well. And, and that's really nice, just a totally different dynamic. We do the pitch walks and the players are fantastic. Like yeah, I had Ben class. Lee show me how to kick left foot, right foot. I then absolutely spanned one. Yeah. Yeah, he commentates on it and he just goes, that's Ming and stick to commentary. That's gold. <laughs> that's just brilliant. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. The about to go into battle is now like taking the mick and they just relax because, you know, you have to delineate these players. Yes, they're all really good at rugby, but that's their profession. But during the warm-ups and doing those kind of things, you get to see the personalities and people love personalities more yeah. than their, their talent. So if we can do that... It's like um, Ellis Genge warming up with the ball boy before the Italy game. I don't know if you saw that. Cool. That was amazing. Made that kid's oh, day. Cool. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But there's loads I'd like to do, but it's just access and time. I, I say um, rugby's biggest challenge is, is actually just time. So we're the second most technical sport in the world, I think, behind NFL. Cricket's up there as well. Mm. NFL has three and a half, four hours to explain what it is, who it is, and who they are. Yeah. As much cricket has from 11 till 6 p.m. That's a lot of time with a couple mm. of tea breaks in between and a lunch break to explain everything. You can pull out personalities and tell stories. Yeah. It doesn't all have to be technical, technical, technical. You get to breathe when I've got your attention for seven hours. Rugby on a Friday night is the biggest build up, or longest build up we have is 45 minutes. Mm. And then we have 80 minutes to talk about the second most technical game on the planet. That's our challenge, just finding areas where we can breathe. When I look at Sky and Monday Night Football and that hour-long show, like if you're a nerd, if you like rugby, if you like football, you'll pl plug into it. Uh, absolutely. Um, it's wicked. Like, I'm fortunate I present Rugby Special um, on a Sunday. Yeah. That's the longest programme dedicated to rugby that's out there. We have an hour, because the BBC done our breaks, so I often do that at Sam Walton, John Barkley. They come across, I mean, they're very good pundits. Mm. When you have an hour to talk about stuff, it's easy to take people on that journey with you and properly explain and animate what's going on. You can talk about personality trends or the rest of it. So it's the time which you have. Ordinarily, you've got in, in a match, if I'm talking for longer than 30 seconds, I'm talking too long. Like you don't have time. And yeah. pre-match, if you're you're trying to cover off items in two or three minutes, so it's it's we just need time to be able to tell that story. But I was actually on a call with World Rugby um, just last week, having this conversation about what more can we do? How can we make it more accessible? How can we make it more entertaining? How can we bring in more people to it? I've quite strong opinions on it. Um, and I'm flipping here to listen to 
absolutely everything because whilst I don't play the game, I'm super passionate about it. Like, I, I love the game and I want more people to be engaged in it. And that's not just playing, that's spectating, that's volunteering, whatever, whatever, because without people of, of an age, say 10, 11, 12 and younger, if they're not engaging in our game now, do you know what I mean? We need to, because there's such a big offering today, whether it's online, on telly, mm. other sports. So I want I want people to get involved in our game. I want them to watch. I want them to buy season tickets, buy jerseys. I want them to think the players are superstars. Get down and care on player, Mike. It'll be like an 80-minute podcast. But he's <laughs> commentating, bro, this weekend. Is he? Is he? Who for? For the BBC. He's doing Wales, England. Good for him. That's a yeah, great gig. I spoke to him earlier and he was like, because um, I'm going up there Friday night, Jamie Roberts having testimonial dinner. So um, I'm going up there, that'd be fun. And yeah. then I'm going to the game and doing a bit of corporate stuff. And I text DC, I was like, bro, do you reckon you could just pop in and do this lunch? He was like, oh, I don't know. I'm commentator. I was like, you, you're commentator? I was like, go on, boy. Yeah. Yeah, that's happened. Yeah, that'll be wicked. So I hope it goes well this weekend. And he actually turned down a free dinner with booze, did he? <laughs> Mate, he's he's doing a gig Friday, just not the one I'm at. <laughs> <laughs> he ain't turning that down. Nah. No too big time now. Too big time. I reckon we've um we've still got him for another year or so in a quin shirt anyway. So we'll make the most of that. Look, we wanna we wanna finish up with a, a few more questions about you and, and mainly your time at Quinns and I'm sure 2012 will probably be the answer to this but I'd love to find out a little bit more what your sweet spots were when you were wearing the quarters what were your your moments that are really poignant in your mind I'm sure Munster away was probably one of them but are there any particular tries any particular matches or even teammates or coaches that have left something on you all these years later uh, Keith Wood as a teammate um, I signed for Quinn's 2001. Um, I was fresh out of school, just got my A-levels. At this point, I don't even think I was paid by the club. Wow. Keith Wood just came back from the British and Irish Lions tour in Australia. But I watched him on the telly. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, as a proper, proper fan, like, in the common room with my mates, watching yeah. him on telly. And then he comes back from that. And I had so many questions, but you're like, oh, I can't even yeah. you know what I mean? It was like, you know, I, I like classical history, like looking at Medusa, you can't, don't look them in the eyes. Don't look them in the eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Another uh, neat reference for, the, for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm struggling to change them. You're like, flipping heck, this is nuts. And I think six weeks into my career with Quinns, I broke a metatarsal. I was out. Woody was coming back from a shoulder rock. So we became like rehab buddies. And mate, the way the dude took me under his wing, like you talk, also that year, he was world player of the year. Wow. And now my rehab buddy, I'm fresh out of school, is the best player on the planet. Yeah. And he was so cool with me, bro. Like, I didn't know what hard work was until I worked with him. Like, I'd only... I'd only trained at a county level, like Hampshire under 16s and played for the school. What is professional rugby all about? Well, it was a, a fierce introduction into the expectations level from the best player on the planet. Yeah. And the way in which he was with me for those six months, 
he texted me a couple of weeks ago. I stay in contact sporadically with him, but I'll never forget how he was with me. And it genuinely changed my outlook in terms of how I, I'm not saying I'm a good bloke or anything, but if someone needs help or I can help, or if I can't help, I will try and do my best to ensure that person can get the help they need. And whether that's advice or transitioning or what, whatever it might be, career advice, mm. whatever it might be, I will do that. And that happened 22 years ago. That's how big an influence he's had on me. But he didn't need to do it, and he did. And I'll tell you what, there's other Harlequins that I played with that didn't do bugger all, that should have done more. So it makes him stand out even more. So he's special. Andre Voss, special. Wow, yeah. Special human being. Came to the Champion 05, Slavkin, legend, captain. And I've forgotten who we were playing. We had an away game, and the away matches were like... They were fun. They were fun. Like we knew we were going to win, but we had a crazy team, bro. Like, we had Andre Voss, Andrew Mertens, Will yeah, Green. Yeah. So, you know, we had a wicked team. So we, we, and we should win. But I had an away trip, finished up, and it was literally like quick shout, get on the bus. Dean Richards got dominoes on the bus, a couple <laughs> of players, head back. And I think I forgot my headphones um, in the change room. So I got off the bus, I walked in the change room, and there's Vossi sweeping up. And I'm like, I'm like 19 or however old I was at that point. Why am I the first one on the bus and an ex-South African captain is sweeping up the change rooms, putting litter in the bin and making sure it's pristine? I was embarrassed when I walked yeah. into the change room. I was like, this isn't right. So when you talk about leadership, the things which are visible are important, but actually the unseen things where you're not doing it for clout, not doing it for cameras, not doing it for prestige or kudos, you're doing it because it's the right thing to do. That's what Vossi was, like absolute legend. So they're two people, certainly during my career, two players during my career that really stand out. That's amazing. I mean, probably two players that are just before Will and I and our sort of love affair with Quinn's, mm. even still now we know the names and we know the stories having spoken to people. Yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. What about what about coaches then? Obviously, you'd have had maybe not even just at Quinn's across your whole career. Oh. Anyone that really, anyone that really sticks in your brain. I've been so genuine. I, I've been so fortunate, and this isn't just that classic. You're on telly answer. I've been really fortunate to have some wicked coaches. First coach, shout out Colin Osborne. Yeah. As a, player, as a player, all you need is someone to give you a chance. Yeah. Give me that chance. And actually, if you were to root the genesis of a lot of what people would call like Harlequins legends gone on to play for the club one or 200 times. And you look at the spine of that 2012 team, he identified the majority of them. Chris Robshaw, Mike Brown, Danny Kerr, was under his tutelage when he came down. Jordan Turner Hall, George Lowe, myself, Mark Lambert. Um, I'm, I'm going to miss players out. Cone, Strettle, Robson. Right. Like, he recruited and got those players together. They all came through his academy. So he's had a touch point and an impact on all of their careers, whether it's for recruitment. Carl Sinclair recruited, bro. Like, mm. When you look back at the starting point for a lot of these players have gone on and done really well at Quinn's, He's he, he's that. Um, Dean Richards came in at a great time for the club when we needed a bit of steel. Yeah. And he was fantastic and probably doesn't get the credit enough or spoken about enough because we know what Connor came in and did. 
But he, his application of our attacking mindset and our way of thinking was applied to the steel, which Dean Richards implemented. Yeah. And a friend, wicked coach, by the way, is that Connor, love him, love him and his family, amazing. Connor, I love, he's a good, he's a good human. And he understood what a young, talented team needed. And that was the pressure taken off us. Uh, I, I say this story a lot, but I remember the first game he, <laughs> in the changing room. <laughs> And he was there giving this team talk and it was like, guys, I won't do his accent. He <laughs> was like, guys, I don't care if you win or lose today. And I was I was a bit like, bro, this dude doesn't even care if we yeah. win. You signed this guy. Yeah. Um, and what I realised was he wanted to take that away from us and what he wanted us to focus on was just our process. I know it's become so cliche, focus on the process, but he knew what I was speaking about earlier, if we did the things that we all could do, we would win. So don't worry about the result. Just focus on what you need to do. Because if you do that well, you will win lots of things. And we did that. So he gave us this belief to actually be ourselves and be to go out and try things. And it wasn't, I hate the word risk. Um, risk, you can only apply risk if you don't have talent. We have talent. So the things we were trying to do, we could do. Sometimes they came off, sometimes they didn't. Like That's just life, isn't it? That's sport. So Connor was wicked for us. But I've been lucky. Sean Edwards, he's the first defence coach I ever had where defence became personal. Like I had a personal mm. relationship with defence. Like, if I missed the tackle, the way in which he made me feel was like, why would you do this to me? <laughs> like, 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 I love that. Do- we need that. Yeah, like 100%. Like, honestly, he's, he's probably one of the first coaches I went into defensive review meeting with where I was like, I know, having watched the game back, I worked as hard as I could, just I couldn't make the tackle or I missed it. Mm. And no one tries to miss a tackle. But I remember going into meetings thinking, oh, my gosh, like, I've so let him down. Wow. That's, that's, that's a hell of an influence to have on a, on a group of players, isn't it? But honestly, like I know everyone uses blitz to um, defenses now, but working with him in 09, like I learned what a blitz defense was, and the way in which he empowered me to get up. I scored like probably the greatest moment of my career from a blitz defense. Yeah, that was born that summer working with Sean Edwards. I never would have done that. I don't think. I don't think I'd have done. It. I may not have had the confidence to get up and get at South Africa without him empowering me and giving me confidence to do that. Right there. Pienaar. Now leave it five for it, captain! Paul O'Connell is warm. Pienaar again. Staying along the line. Olafia. Here comes Monja! Monja's away! Not quite quick, but I don't think he's that quick. Monja for the post. He's punching the Andy Fowles the same personal relationship with him. Like I would come out of Tuesday meetings. That's your big day of training. Ordinarily, I'd be ready to play test match. Like the way in which he like made you think and feel was wicked. Warren Gatlin's and so I'm listing loads. But <laughs> no, they're all gems though, aren't they? Gats is wicked. He, um, I. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know. I was young, like I, I think I only had six caps going on to that Lions tour, and 
got Shane Williams on the tour. Who's a, um, he was voted world's best rugby player, world player of the year. And I remember after the training session, I walked into the hotel and the two of them, Warren Gatlin and Sean Edwards sat at the bar. Hey, you go, come over here. And I'm like, all right, am I in trouble? Walked over and they're like, uh, what do you want to drink? And I was like, water? And they're like, no, 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 what do you want to drink? I was like, um, shit, this is always a trick question. Must be. Um, fizzy water? They're like, no, <laughs> <laughs> they're like, do you want a beer? They had beers. I was like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Go on, man. I love the beer. I sat down. They're like, how's it going? I said, man, I'm really enjoying it. Like, best time of my life. How good is this? Like, how good is this? Just to wear the kit. This is just wicked. And they're like, you go, you're a good player. And I was, I was like, it was just a weird thing for a coach to say because, like, over a pro- pint as well. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have known what to have done with the pint. Do I? Do I sip right. it sort of casually? Do I get rid of it half and then listen to them? What, what do I do with this pint? Gats was like drinking his beer out of his right hand. I just wanted to call him in a buffalo. <laughs> so <I was> like, <laughs> <laughs> Mike, Mike, I don't know if you clocked it earlier. Ugo was finishing his drink and he did a little eg. I don't know if you clocked that. <laughs> did you clock that? Yeah, I didn't clock that. It's... It was mid flow. Well, I didn't want to interrupt him, but I really respected hard. it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, rules be rules. Um, so he was like, "You're a good player," and. It was just weird hearing it from them because you're probably on a Lions tour because you're like a relatively good player, but there's something quite personal when they're saying it. And they said, like, you go, like, really back yourself. And they started naming wingers that weren't there. And there was a, there's a lot of good players that don't make a Lions tour, and as there should be, because it should represent the best of the best. And he went, honestly, when I look at you, I just want to see your swag. I want to see you just back yourself in everything you do. And we had a beer and I went up to my room and I was made up. Yeah. Because like you need some kind of, it's a guessing game. The competition is crazy high. Yeah, I can imagine it's so tough mentally, isn't it? You, you're obviously there on merit, but you're you're there with the best of the best and you don't know where you stand. Of course. But I reckon he had a chat with every single player and said those things. And I don't know, I didn't see it. I didn't care. Mm. I went back to my room and I was like that. I needed to hear that, I think. You know, mm. I needed to hear that. So, like, I guess with with all of it, the, the coaches that I pulled out and mentioned, and there's more I could mention, are the ones where you have personal relations with. There's loads of good technical coaches out there. Like, everyone knows the game at this point. Like, otherwise, why are you coaching? But the ones that can make you feel a certain way and make you do more than you might even believe they're the best coaches. They're yeah. absolutely the best ones. It applies in all walks of life, doesn't it? I've had a few different bosses and managers in my time, in my professional career, and some of the things... Well, you learn what to do from the best ones and you learn what not to do from from the ones that aren't so good. So it, it applies to all trades of life as well. But it's, it's amazing to hear little stories Question, like that who, and get little snippets. Mike and Will, who are your favourite teachers from school? PE teachers. Am I allowed to say myself as a PE teacher? No. Yeah, no. Who's your favourite teacher? Like, and and why? Um, who's my favourite? I'm going to go right back to. I'm actually going to go right back to primary school, not secondary school, because I was a pretty handy footballer. And there was a a teacher from I think he was from Manchester called Mister Gallowood, and um, we used to beat teams like eight or nine nil. We were we were pretty good, and um, he actually always used to take the piss out of me because I wouldn't share the goals around. And that's that's stuck with me for 
That's classic. The, that is that is the most the humble brag. It's the humble brag. But at the time, I was really like down about it because I thought I was selfish. But looking back, it was just him poking a bit of fun and, and trying to strike up a bit of rapport when there wasn't really too much competition on the line. So, I'd say Mr. Gallowood for me. What would you say? I'd go for uh, Miss Webster, Year Seven, because she was my first ever hockey coach. Plus, her daughter was in my year group, and I quite fancied her. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> Okay. No, she she was my no, she she was no she was she was my my first P teacher. She was my form tutor and she was my GCSE and A level teacher all the way through. She was um she was a bit of a rock star. We used to absolutely love her. But you know what's mad? I guess the point I'm trying to make is, like, Will, you're not telling me about your football coach because he was the most technically gifted. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. Mike, you're not telling me about Miss Webster or Mrs. Webster because she was so good at hockey. But there's something, they left a yeah. personal imprint on you. You yeah. still remember them. Year seven to today. It's, yeah. and, and it's the same with coaching. Like, you expect them. Like, you expect teachers to be good teachers, hockey coaches to be good coaches, football coaches. But it's the relationship you develop. That brings out the best in people. That's how you get remembered. That's how you get people to take you on a journey to believe what you want them to believe and make them feel empowered to go off and do that. And like for you, Will, he challenged you yeah. and he made you think about it and you still remember it today. Yeah. So started assisting coach. a little bit more instead. Exactly. <laughs> no, you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, if you can have that personal rapport with whoever you're coaching, and this is for all, for, in, in, in every part of life, like forget the job title, like I've I've asked coaches if you could describe um, the role of a coach about using the word coach. How would you describe it? And it was really interesting the feedback I got, and they were like, "Oh well, to get the best out of people, to upskill people, for people to reach their potential, to be a good friend, to be a good this." I was like, "Be that every day. Forget the word coach. Coach is actually such a boring phrase. Yeah, like it's so for me, it's so outdated." If you think of the job description and you apply the job description every day, I promise you, you get more out of the players. If you go into training every day thinking, I'm trying to get this person to reach their potential. I'm trying to get him or her to be the best they can be or challenge them, challenge their thinking, make them feel safe, make them feel free. If you apply that every day, I promise you, the team, the individual become better teams, better individuals. Do you do mentoring, Oogs? Do you mentor anyone? If you do, if you, you do, can do. I sign up? You 100% <laughs> should do. I want to go for um, a beer. <laughs> wouldn't it, mate? We can go for a beer, 100%. A beer. Um, I, um, I stay in touch with certain individuals and I offer and I, um, I offer myself as a person who they can talk to who is connected to the game but so yeah. disconnected yeah. from... No strict sort of mentoring title to it. It's more of like a, you're there to offer support and direction but there's no sort of official mentoring relationship. 100%. I've, I've done a few bits where I've been out in Ireland. Um, this was a few years ago when I went down to a province and looked over their back three and worked with some individuals there. There's some players in the Prem who I've taken time just to text and chat. And I don't know. And it's not because, actually, it, it, what's really nice is because it challenges my thinking, but also um, 
when you watch so much rugby across so many different competitions, you see quite a lot. Mm. And I, I, I want to, if I can feed it back, I will feed it back. But also, what's wicked is when you have a conversation, and I did this with um with a winger who plays in the Prem a couple of years ago. We chatted about lots of things. When you disagree, that's brilliant. Because I'll go, I think maybe this, and they challenge and push it. And it actually just makes me go and research more, think about it more, mm. just to understand. And there's no right or wrong in it. And I, I know it sounds really cliche, but I quite enjoy it because I can be an independent place where people can offload and chat and you can discuss rugby because like the three of us on this call all really like rugby. I like, I love my rugby. The players that I will speak to um, love their rugby and are living it. And so I love talking rugby. So yeah. someone who's played it wants to talk rugby. I'm here for it. Yeah. Well, uh, before we um, drag away the rest of your evening, just a very quick thank you from me and Will. This has been probably my favourite episode we've done in a such long time. Yeah. Those of you that are obviously big Harlequins fans will love hearing from Ugo, but just the privilege, the privilege of actually just sitting on and listening to you speak is, is amazing for someone who watched you growing up. I won't, again, I'm going to get a bit gushy. One memory <laughs> that I have of you, Ugo, and forgive me here very, very briefly. If, if Rob Fogarty, my mate from Lewis Rugby Club, is out there listening to this somewhere, he'll remember it. I think we were playing... God knows, it might have been Connor at home in an early pre-season game when we used to have those sort of curtain-raiser cup things on the mm. trowel lot way, playing fields before. We were defending our own line in front of the south stand. We were sat in the front row. And so I know, I don't know why, we looked at each other and we shouted, come on, Ugo. And you put your thumbs up behind your back. And then there's about 25, 30 people all behind us that gave us a big old cheer. And then <laughs> I think you put in a tackle, we turned the ball over. But I remember that moment. So to sit here now and have a little conversation is um is pretty special, mate. So we really, really appreciate it. No, honestly, I I got a message and I reckon I replied within two minutes. <laughs> Man, I, I text Will this morning. I was like, I've just sent him the link. And before I could have send the follow-up message, it said seen. I'm like, this is sick. <laughs> yeah, like, I don't know. It's... I'm enthusiastic about rugby. So speaking to other people who share the same enthusiasm, especially about the team I play for, I was like, it's yeah. a no-brainer. And I don't have to ask the questions, although I did ask. I snuck one in at the end there. <laughs> it's, it's cool. And you're, well, uh, yeah. You name, a, you name a pub in Twickenham and we'll, me and Will will buy you a pint and I promise it won't be a fizzy water. <laughs> <laughs> I will have my eyes on right-hand drinking though, for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah too right. Right we'll, right, we'll we'll leave it there, Rugs. Good luck for the rest of the season on the other side of the telly to us. Uh, we look forward to to listening and watching, and and hopefully we catch you down either stoop or at Twickenham for a pint as well. But yeah, thank you so much for shout. your time. Well, give me a shout when you're next down at the stoop, and we'll definitely go for a beer. Love we'll that. Do it. We'll Love do it. That. We'll hold you Love to that, man. Take it easy, lads. Cheers, Rugs. Well, how about that? Massive thanks to Ugo Monia for joining us. That was probably one of the best interviews I think we've ever done. But what was your your debrief, Mike? Hit me. I think I loved him even more than I did previously. I mean, I don't know how that will translate to other people, but just to sit here and be able to look into his eyes and listen to him was really quite quite special. I loved it. Unrivaled energy, wasn't it? The energy oh, he brought. Yeah. I, can't wait man. Have, I can't wait to have a beer with him. No, I've got the <laughs> genuine energy as well, like yeah. genuine, which was so nice to see. But 
um i really enjoyed every second of that i actually can't wait to to listen back to it and i hope we can we can get him back on at some point in the future as well and it's it's definitely got me excited for some other future guests as well so big thanks to ugo we'll move on now to i'd say the second part of this podcast but it will only be a fraction of it because <laughs> we we got so caught up in it with ugs but we're going to look ahead to big game 14 which is our next fixture in the calendar it's on saturday the 4th of march it is now against Exeter. It is going to be absolutely massive. I know we've already sold 50,000 tickets, but there's still a long way to go. So bring your friends, bring your family. But not only that, it is going to be a humdinger. It's Quinns versus Exeter, both sides in the playoff hunt. God, we're desperate for a win now, aren't we, mate? Is it is it win or bust at this stage? Just... I think so. I think it's a, it's a sad one looking at it, but I think it is win or bust. It's absolutely monumental. Every game's a cup final now. It's. It felt like that at Gloucester. Those last ten minutes, we let ourselves down. This is absolutely enormous now, and we we always show up at at the big stoop. We've got good memories of Exeter at the big stoop as well. We've got the ink to prove it. I'm excited for it. It feels like a big occasion, and it's going to be a monumental clash that we really need to take five points from. And I can't really say much more than that. Yeah, you made a good point talking with Oogs as well about the sort of high-rolling tour that we're about to go on with two games at Twickers, one at Spurs Stadium. Welford Road away is a big place to go as well. So the last six games of our season are as big as they get, really. I'm looking forward to getting a few more away days under the belt at, at Spurs. And I'd love to get down to Leicester because it could be the decider for that last playoff spot. Thank you for joining us on that roller coaster. We hope you loved it as much as we did recording it. We look forward to, to getting back on here with all of you after the Exeter game and hopefully we're looking at five games left to go and we've got another win under our belt and playoffs is well and truly on. Is it on here? Is it really on? <laughs> it's got me pumped up. I can't wait to see everyone at the Big Stoop in a couple of weeks' time, so I'll see you all there. Come on, you Quins. Come on, the Quins.